June 23rd, 1972, the world of women's sports changed forever. Now, 50 years after Title IX became law, we're celebrating with a podcast dedicated to women's stories, where we'll examine and amplify women who changed the face of sports as we know it today. Listen and subscribe to Starting Nine Up, a Title IX podcast on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Celebrate the 50th anniversary of Title IX with nine stories about girls in women's sports with a Columbus connection. Welcome to my show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on the life of Frederick Douglass, who wrote three autobiographies. I will continue with the second autobiography written by Frederick Douglass, which is My Bondage and My Freedom, which each week I will read to you certain portions of each chapter. The ebook can be downloaded from www.guttenberg.org backslash files backslash 202 backslash 202-h backslash 202-h.htm. Chapter 16, Experience in St. Michael's. St. Michael's, the village in which was now my new home, compared favorably with villages in slave states generally. There were a few comfortable dwellings in it, but the place as a whole wore a dull, slovenly, enterprise forsaken aspect. The mass of the buildings were wood. They had never enjoyed the artificial adornment of paint and time, and storms had worn off the bright color of the wood, leaving them almost as black as buildings charred by a conflagration. St. Michael's had in former years previous to 1833, for that was the year I went to reside there, enjoyed some reputation as a shipbuilding community, but that business had almost entirely given place to oyster fishing for the Baltimore and Philadelphia markets, a course of life highly unfavorable to morals, industry, and manners. Miles River was broad, and its oyster fishing grounds were extensive, and the fishermen were out, often, all day, and a part of the night during autumn, winter, and spring. This exposure was an excuse for carrying with them in considerable quantities spirituous liquors, the then supposed best antidote for colds. Each canoe was supplied with its jug of rum and tippling. Among this class of the citizens of St. Michael's became general. This drinking habit in an ignorant population fostered coarseness, vulgarity, 
and an indolent disregard for the social improvement of the place, so that it was admitted by the few sober, thinking people who remained there, that St. Michael's had become a very unsaintly as well as unsightly place before I went there to reside. I left Baltimore for St. Michael's in the month of March, 1833. I know the year because it was the one succeeding the first cholera in Baltimore, and was the year also of that strange phenomenon when the heavens seemed about to part with its starry train. I witnessed this gorgeous spectacle and was awestruck. The air seemed filled with bright descending messengers, messengers from the sky. It was about daybreak when I saw this sublime scene. I was not without the suggestion at the moment that it might be the harbinger of the coming of the Son of Man, and, in my then state of mind, I was prepared to hail him as my friend and deliverer. I had read that the stars shall fall from heaven, and they were now falling. I was suffering much in my mind. It did seem that every time the young tendrils of my affection became attached, they were rudely broken by some unnatural outside power, and I was beginning to look away to heaven, for the rest denied me on earth. Chapter 15. Covey the Negro Breaker The morning of the 1st of January, 1834, with its chilling wind and pinching frost, quite in harmony with the winter in my own mind, found me, with my little bundle of clothing on the end of a stick, swung across my shoulder, on the main road, bending my way towards Covey's, whether I had been imperiously ordered by Master Thomas. The latter had been as good as his word, and had committed me, without reserve, to the mastery of Mr. Edward Covey. Eight or ten years had now passed since I had been taken from my grandmother's cabin in Tuckahoe, and these years, for the most part, I had spent in Baltimore, where, as a reader has already seen, I was treated with comparative tenderness. I was now about to sound profounder depths in slave life. The rigors of a field less tolerable than the field of battle awaited me. My new master was notorious for his fierce and savage disposition, and my only consolation in going to live with him was the certainty of finding him precisely as represented by common fame. There was neither joy in my heart nor elasticity in my step as I started in search of the tyrant's home. Starvation made me glad to leave Thomas Auld's, and the cruel lash made me dread to go to Covis. Escape was impossible, so heavy and sad. I paced the seven miles which separated Covis' house from St. Michael's, thinking much by the solitary way, averse to my condition, but thinking was all I could do. Like a fish in a net, allowed to play for a time, I was now drawn rapidly to the shore, secured at all points. I am, thought I, but the sport of a power which makes no account either of my welfare or of my happiness. By a law which I can clearly comprehend, but cannot evade nor resist, I am ruthlessly snatched from the hearth of a fond grandmother and hurried away to the home of a mysterious old master. Again, I am removed from there to a master in Baltimore. Thence am I snatched away to the eastern shore to be valued with the beasts of the field and with them divided and set apart for a possessor. 
then I am sent back to Baltimore. By the time I have formed new attachments and have begun to hope that no more rude shocks shall touch me, a difference arises between brothers, and I am again broken up and sent to St. Michael's, and now from the latter place I am footing my way to the home of a new master, where I am given to understand that, like a wild young working animal, I am to be broken to the yoke of a bitter and lifelong bondage. With thoughts and reflections like these, I came in sight of a small wood-colored building, about a mile from the main road, which, from the description I had received at starting, I easily recognized as my new home, the Chesapeake Bay, upon the jutting banks of which the little wood-colored house was standing, white with foam, raised by the heavy northwest wind. Poplar Island, covered with a thick black pine forest, standing out amidst this half-ocean, and Kent Point, stretching its sandy, desert-like shores out into the foam-cested bay, were all in sight, and deepened the wild and desolate aspect of my new home. The good clothes I had brought with me from Baltimore were now worn thin, and had not been replaced, for Master Thomas was as little careful to provide us against cold as against hunger met here by a north wind, sweeping through an open space of forty miles. I was glad to make any port, and therefore I speedily pressed on to the little wood-colored house. The family consisted of Mr. and Mrs. Covey, Miss Kemp, a broken-backed woman, a sister of Mrs. Covey, William Hughes, cousin to Edward Covey, Caroline the cook, Bill Smith the hide man, and myself. Bill Smith, Bill Hughes and myself were the work, working force of the farm, which consisted of three or four hundred acres. I was now, for the first time in my life, to be a field hand, and in my new employment I found myself even more awkward than a green country boy may be supposed to be, upon his first entrance into the bewildering scenes of city life, and my awkwardness gave me much trouble. Strange and unnatural as it may seem, I had been at my new home but three days before Mr. Covey, my brother in the Methodist Church, gave me a bitter foretaste of what was in reserve for me. I presume he thought that since he had but a single year in which to complete his work, the sooner he begun, the better. Perhaps he thought that by coming to blows at once, we should mutually better understand our relations, but to whatever motive, direct or indirect, the cause may be referred, I had not been in his possession three whole days before he subjected me to a most brutal chastisement. Under his heavy blows, blood flowed freely, and wheels were left on my back as large as my little finger. The sores on my back from this flogging continued for weeks, for they were kept open by the rough and coarse cloth which I wore for shirting. The occasion and details of this first chapter of my experience as a field hand must be told, that the reader may see how unreasonable, as well as how cruel, my new master, Covey, was. The whole thing I found to be characteristic of the man, and I was probably treated no worse by him than scores of lads who had previously been committed to him, for reasons similar to those which induced my master to place me with him. But here are the facts connected with the affair, precisely as they occurred.
right now. You might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.newheightseducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store, Welcome back to the New Heights Show on Education. My name is Barbara Bulland and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. A recap of the first segment of the show on Frederick Douglass will continue. On one of the coldest days of the whole month of January, 1834, I was ordered at daybreak to get a load of wood from a forest about two miles from the house. In order to perform this work, Mr. Covey gave me a pair of unbroken oxen, for it seems his breaking abilities had not been turned in this direction. And I may remark, in passing, that working animals in the South are seldom so well trained as in the North. In due form and with all proper ceremony, I was introduced to this huge yoke of unbroken oxen and was carefully told which was Buck and which was Darby, which was, in, which was the in-hand and which was the off-hand ox. The master of this important ceremony was no less a person than Mr. Covey himself, and the introduction was the first of the kind I had ever had. My life hitherto had led me away from horned cattle, and I had no knowledge of the art of managing them. What was meant by the in-ox as against the off-ox, when both were equally fastened to one cart and under one yoke, I could not very easily divine, and the difference implied by the names and the peculiar duties of each were alike Greek to me. Why was not the off-ox called the in-ox? Where and what is the reason for this distinction in names, when there is none in the things themselves? After initiating me into the woe, back, he, hither, the entire spoken language between oxen and driver. Mr. Covey took a rope about ten feet long and one inch thick and placed one end of it around the horns of the in-hand ox and gave the other end to me, telling me that if the oxen started to run away, as a scamp knew they would, I must hold onto the rope and stop them. I need not tell anyone who is acquainted with either the strength of the disposition of an untamed ox that this order was about as unreasonable as a command to shoulder a mad bull. I had never driven oxen before, and I was as awkward as a driver as it is possible to conceive. It did not answer for me to plead ignorance to Mr. Covey. There was something in his manner that quite forbade that. He was a man to whom a slave seldom felt any disposition to speak. Cold, distant, morose, 
with a face wearing all the marks of captious pride and malicious sternness. He repelled all advances. Covey was not a large man. He was only about five feet ten inches in height, I should think. Short-necked, round shoulders of quick and wiry motion, of thin and wolfish visage, with a pair of small greenish-gray eyes, set well back under a forehead without dignity, and constantly in motion, and floating his passions rather than his thoughts, in sight, but denying them utterance in words. The creature presented an appearance altogether ferocious and sinister, disagreeable and forbidding in the extreme. When he spoke, it was from the corner of his mouth and in a sort of light growl, like a dog, when an attempt is made to take a bone from him. The fellow had already made me believe him even worse than he had been presented. With his directions, and without stopping to question, I started for the woods, quite anxious to perform my first exploit in driving in a credible manner. The distance from the house to the woods gate a full mile, I should think, was passed over with very little difficulty. For although the animals ran, I was fleet enough in the open field to keep pace with them, especially as they pulled me along at the end of the rope. But on reaching the woods, I was speedily thrown into a distressing plight. The animals took fright and started off ferociously into the woods, carrying the cart full tilt against trees over stumps and dashing from side to side in a manner altogether frightful. As I held the rope, I expected every moment to be crushed between the cart and the huge trees, among which they were so furiously dashing. After running thus for several minutes, my oxen were finally brought to a stand by a tree, against which they dashed themselves with great violence, upset the cart, and entangling themselves among sundry young saplings. By the shock, the body of the cart was flung in one direction, and the wheels and tongue in another, and all in the greatest confusion. There I was, all alone, in a thick wood, to which I was a stranger, my cart upset and shattered, my oxen entangled, wild and enraged, and I, poor soul, but a green hen, to set all this disorder right, I knew no more of oxen than the ox driver supposed to know of wisdom. After standing a few moments surveying the damage and disorder, and not without a presentment that this trouble would draw after it others even more distressing, I took one end of the cart body, and by an extra outlay of strength I lifted it towards the axle-tree from which it had been violently flung, and after much pulling and straining, I succeeded in getting the body of the cart in its place. This was an important step out of the difficulty, and its performance increased my courage for the work which remained to be done. The cart was provided with an axe, a tool with which I had become pretty well acquainted in the shipyard at Baltimore. With this, I cut down the saplings by which my oxen were entangled, and again pursued my journey. With my heart in my mouth, lest the oxen should again take it into their senseless heads to cut up a caper, my fears were groundless. Their spree was over for the present, and the rascals now moved off as soberly as though their behavior had been natural and exemplary. On reaching the part of the forest where I had been the day before, chopping wood, I filled the cart with a heavy load as a security against another running away. But the neck of an oxen is equal in strength to iron. It defies all ordinary burdens when excited. 
Time and docile to a proverb, when well trained, the ox is the most sullen and intractable of animals when but half broken to the yoke. I now saw in my situation several points of similarity with that of the oxen. They were property, and so was I. They were to be broken, so was I. Kobe was to break me, I was to break them, break and be broken, such is life. Chapter 16 Another Pressure of the Tyrant's Vice The foregoing chapter with all its horrid incidents and shocking features may be taken as a fair representation of the first six months of my life at Covey's. The reader has but to repeat, in his own mind, once a week, the scene in the woods where Covey subjected me to his merciless lash, to have a true idea of my bitter experience there, during the first period of the breaking process through which Mr. Kobe carried me. I have no heart to repeat each separate transaction in which I was victim of his violence and brutality. Such a narration would fill a volume much larger than the present one. I aim only to give the reader a truthful impression of my slave life without unnecessarily affecting him with harrowing details. As I have elsewhere intimidated, inti I'm sorry, as I have elsewhere intimated that my hardships were much greater than the first six months of my stay at Covis than during the remainder of the year, and as a change in my condition was owing to causes which may help the reader to a better understanding of human nature when subjected to the terrible extremities of slavery, I will narrate the circumstances of this change, although I may seem thereby to applaud my own courage. You have, dear reader, seen me humbled, degraded, broken down, enslaved, and brutalized, and you understand how it was done. Now, let us you see the converse of the, all this, and how it was brought about, and this will take us through the year 1834. On one of the hottest days of the month of August, of the year just mentioned, had the reader been passing through Cobus farm, he might have seen me at work in what is there called the trading the treading yard, a yard upon which weed is trodden out from the straw by the horse's feet. I was there at work feeding the fan, or rather bringing wheat to the fan, while Bill Smith was feeding. Our force consisted of Bill Hughes, Bill Smith, and a slave by the name of Eli. The latter having been hired for this occasion, the work was simple and required strength and activity rather than any skill or intelligence. And yet, to one entirely unused to such work, it came very hard. The heat was intense and overpowering, and there was much hurry to get the wheat trodden out that day, through the fan. Since, if that work was done an hour before sundown, the hands would have, according to a promise of Covey, that hour added to their night's rest. I was not behind any of them in the wish to complete the day's work before sundown, and hence I struggled with all my might to get the work forward. The promise of one's hour's repose on a weekday was sufficient to quicken my pace and to spur me on to extra endeavour. Besides, we had all planned to go fishing, and I certainly wished to have a hand in that. But I was disappointed, and the day turned out to be one of the bitterest I ever experienced. About three o'clock, while the sun was pouring down his burning rays, and not a breeze was stirring, I broke down, 
my strength failed me i was seized with a violent aching of the head attended with extreme dizziness and trembling in every limb finding what was coming and feeling it would never do to stop work i nerved myself up and staggered on until i fell by the side of the wheat fan feeling that the earth had fallen upon me this brought the entire work to a dead stand there was work for four each one had his part to perform and each part depended on the other so that when one stopped all were compelled to stop Covey, who had now become my dread as well as my tormentor was at the house about a hundred yards from where i was fanning and instantly upon hearing the fan stop he came down to the treading yard to inquire into the cause of our stopping bill smith told him i was sick and that i was unable long that and that i was unable longer to bring wheat to the fan this comes to the conclusion of the show next week's show will continue on the autobiography of frederick douglas by my bondage and my freedom thank you for listening you can reach me by email barbara b at newheighteducation.org be sure to join me every sunday at radio.newheighteducation.org 5 p.m eastern standard time as i discuss the history of civil rights also join pamela clark's pre-recorded shows which airs wednesday by 6 p.m eastern standard time Civil rights is our right. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Imagine your new bathroom, a sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels.